Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening this week. Florida has one of the oldest populations in the United States, and the coronavirus, COVID-19, is deadliest to senior citizens. As the number of COVID-19 cases increases in Florida, the state may be particularly vulnerable to the threat of the virus. One out of five Floridians is at least 65 years old. Almost one out of 10 is 75. According to the World Health Organization, people over 60 are at the highest risk of severe cases of COVID-19, the coronavirus, especially people with other health problems like high blood pressure, diabetes, and heart disease. The WHO study finds the virus is more deadly to older people, especially to people older than 80. The epicenter of the outbreak in Washington state is a nursing home just outside of Seattle. All this puts the focus on the nursing home industry in Florida and how it's preparing for and responding to the virus. We view your facilities as, as really very important. This is Governor Ron DeSantis last Tuesday on a conference call with nursing home providers across the state. We obviously view your facilities um, as facilities that, that really need to be protected from people entering who, um, who have symptoms. There are more than 3,500 licensed nursing homes and assisted living facilities in Florida. Together, they can host almost 200,000 patients, according to the industry's trade group, the Florida Healthcare Association. Despite the risk the virus poses for nursing home residents and staff, the facilities do not have testing kits. There is not a current plan to have specimen collection kits distributed into nursing homes for specimen collection. That is the Florida Health Department's Community Preparedness Manager, Dale Mooney, on a second conference call with nursing home providers that was held on Friday. Elaine Bloom is the CEO of Plaza Health Network, a nonprofit that owns five nursing homes in Miami-Dade County. My hope, my goal is that they will provide some testing kits in each uh, skilled nursing facility so that our doctors or nurse practitioners can um, provide and utilize them uh, rather than have a uh, situation where we have to wait for somebody to come from the Department of Health, wait uh, up to two days to get the answer and then send the person to the emergency room. Nursing homes and all health care facilities that suspect someone may have the virus are told to contact the local county health department, which then decides whether or not to test them for the disease. The three state testing facilities run those tests, and any presumptive positive results are sent to the Centers for Disease Control for confirmation. The capacity to run the tests is expected to increase as commercial labs receive the necessary regulatory OKs, but there remain questions around the availability of the tests themselves. Last week, Governor DeSantis said the federal government would be sending tens of thousands of test kits to Florida. And Bloom with Plaza Health Network hopes the state will expand its guidelines for who should be tested to allow doctors and advanced practice registered nurses to make determinations. I think that the Florida Department of Health has to open up the uh, testing uh, to many more people. Um, I'm really um, concerned about this. Uh, especially as you read the cases that have been discovered in other parts of the country, uh, not everybody fits the, uh, the definition of having come in from a trip to China or Italy. So I think we need to rely on medical professionals who will rule out uh, influenza and other uh, illnesses uh, in order to make a diagnosis. While the focus is on preparations and response for the nursing home industry, the virus threatens to expose another vulnerability of the business, 
a shortage of trained nurses and nursing assistants. Kristen Knapp is the Director of Communications for the Florida Healthcare Association Trade Group. One of the biggest challenges that we're having already, even beyond and before, you know, this um, coronavirus was just a workforce shortage. Um, We are experiencing a significant workforce shortage in our state um, for for healthcare workers in nursing homes. According to data from the federal government, there were almost 90,000 nursing assistants working in Florida in 2018. Not all of them had jobs with nursing homes, but nationally, over half of nursing assistants work in skilled nursing facilities or assisted living facilities. In Florida, the average annual pay is about $27,000. Our certified nursing assistants, our frontline staff, um, you know, they're looking for competitive wages. And so we're losing workers to Target, Amazon, you know, Chick-fil-A, because they're able to pay a more competitive wage. In South Florida, like in other industries, the average wage for nursing assistants is lower than the state average. It was just over $26,000 a year in 2018. We're sort of hitting a, a, you know, a, a silver tsunami, if you will, that we really need to address and get a handle on. Um, One option for Florida nursing homes is to turn to 31 other states to bring in nurses. It's a tool that can be handy in times of hurricanes. But how could it work in a widespread COVID-19 outbreak remains to be tested. Florida is part of a nurse compact state, which means that we have reciprocity. So um, if you're licensed in Georgia, for example, you could come and um, practice in Florida. So some of our um, nursing home companies that might have sister facilities outside of Florida, they could potentially bring in individuals to help. We do that a lot during hurricanes when um, we've got, you know, evacuations or sheltering in place and we need additional support staff to, you know, relieve the nurses who have been on around the clock during the storms. Of course, the threat here is that a hurricane hits in one place and this virus, right, uh, you know, there's big concern is how widespread it could be. Sure. Sure. What were some of those other alternatives? There are staffing agencies that um, you could um, use temporary staff, but it's not ideal. Um, obviously, having your own staff who you know know your your organization's um, procedures and protocols is much more um, ideal. But you know, those are just some of the things that we're looking at. And again, you know. Trying to limit and prevent any type of of spread is is obviously the you know the first priority so that we can make sure we can keep our healthcare workers um, you know keep them healthy. And so last week, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the agency that pays many of the patient bills at nursing home facilities, released guidelines on how homes should screen visitors and workers. So still to come, how one nursing home operator is responding to the threat. It's difficult. Um, because our staff have to be licensed, they have to be trained. Um, we just we can't just hire people from the community. Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Today we're talking about the nursing home industry as it prepares for and responds to the threat of COVID-19, the coronavirus. You can follow WLRN on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
Later on in this program, James Cunningham's story of money and the price of life in South Florida. After law school at UF, he moved to Miami to begin his legal career, but he felt unfulfilled, so left the business for a few years, only to return. And in those two years, I saw myself falling behind economically from my friends, because most of my friends in Miami were also lawyers. Find out what he did during those two years away from being a lawyer and what he's doing now that he is retired from his legal work. That story is coming up later on in this program. You can share your story of money and the price of life. Email us, sunshineeconomy at wlrnnews.org. That's sunshineeconomy at wlrnnews.org. If you work or visit one of Plaza Health Network's five nursing homes in Miami-Dade County, expect to be asked to get your temperature taken. It is part of the group's response to the threat of COVID-19. The coronavirus has been shown to be more deadly for people over 60 years old, especially those with other health problems. Florida's large and growing senior citizen population puts the state's nursing home businesses under pressure to respond and prepare for the virus. The federal government has recommended that nursing homes and assisted living facilities screen visitors, staff, and vendors for the disease by asking them questions about any recent international travel to countries with outbreaks. If they have come into contact with anyone who has or is being monitored for the virus or has a fever. Elaine Bloom is the CEO of Plaza Health Network. It's a nonprofit nursing home operator with 663 beds across its facilities. It has over 1,000 employees and about $70 million in annual revenues. Elaine, welcome back to WLRN. What operational changes have you made in your nursing homes due to the COVID-19 threat? Well, we've certainly changed our uh, response to visitors entering our facilities in order to protect their beloved patients and residents, uh, but we've also added uh, ways that we're handling uh, our staff. Uh, for example, we are now going to require everybody coming in to the buildings to uh, attest to the fact of uh, whether they've traveled recently, whether they have any health problems, et cetera, and also ask them to have allow us to use a thermometer supplied to the forehead in order to test to see that they have uh, less than 100 degrees of uh, body temperature. And we're going to do the same with our staff as they come to work so that we make sure that nobody has anything brewing. These are recommendations that have been made by trade organizations as well as the State Department of Health and, and federal... No, they haven't. Excuse me. On, on the contrary. They have I've requested to, I... screening of visitors. Uh -huh. they, yes, they have requested screening of visitors, but there has been pushback to my recommendations to use uh, the temporal thermometer uh, because that's been considered invasive. Also, the uh, utilization of a document which people will sign, in effect, is not allowing the free access to the population of patients. But we believe that this is necessary in order to protect our patients from anything that might harm them. So the health agencies have requested more uh, vigorous visitor and employee screening. That has manifested into, at your nursing homes, temperature checks and signing of a document. Is that right? That is correct. What does the document state? The document will just ask them yes or no questions. Have you been out of the country to these particular countries? Have you had any illness in the past few weeks? Have they now, as they entered, 
uh, wash their hands or uh, use the sanitizer. Uh, and we'll also ask whether they've agreed to have their temperature checked. And then that will be signed and dated so that we have a record if that becomes necessary in the future. And what about for staff members? Staff members uh, in skilled nursing facilities have to observe very stringent requirements uh, in terms of hand washing, in terms of utilization of gloves, fresh gloves in each patient's rooms. Uh, and of course, the cleaning staff are very, very uh, diligent and vigilant. Um, but we will also require staff to undergo uh, entrance uh, testing as well so that we do not uh, avoid uh, the opportunity to pick up something that somebody may bring from their own home. So these are protective measures kind of on the envelope of the facility, right, as people come yeah. in and out. How long are you prepared yes. to keep those protective measures in place? Until we get the word from the uh, health authorities that we are no longer at risk. Um, as far as our employees are concerned, all of our employees are covered uh, by uh, health care uh, insurance, and uh, we will do everything possible to try to make it as safe for them and try to avoid hurting their economic interests as well. It's going to be very difficult. How difficult will it be, and where are those difficulties going to be in terms of just operating the business? If you consider the fact that if things get really tough in the community, there may be school closings, in which case people may have to stay home because they don't have any place for their children to be cared for, uh, that will, of course, have a tremendous burden on us as well, since we'll have to hire replacement personnel. And if somebody comes to work uh, who tests uh, with higher than minimal uh, temperature, uh, we have to send them home, and then we have to quickly get somebody uh, to come in uh, for the day to cover that person's shift, meaning that we will have, you know, difficulty keeping our mandatory uh, staffing requirements uh, met. Elaine, is there the supply of skilled nurses? Should it come to that for your operations? Well, this is what we will have to discover in the future. I don't think we've had this kind of uh, uh, problem uh, ever, uh, but we're about to see uh, if this should come to pass, as it looks like it will, uh, how we handle it. It's difficult um, because our staff have to be licensed. They have to be trained. Um, we, just, we can't just hire people from the community. What is the financial impact on your business? There's still lots of uncertainty, of course, and the focus is on the health of patients and employees and public health. But I would imagine as an operator, you have to be thinking at least about the impact in the business model. It's going to be very difficult. Uh, we, uh, we work very close to the bone because uh, the uh, Medicaid reimbursement rate is a uh, very tight one and we generally lose a little bit on every patient. Um, the Medicare reimbursing patients are, uh, are a little better pro uh, provided for uh, by their insurers. And then there are the people on the Medicare Advantage programs, which are very um, close to the bone as well. Where are the impacts for you? Is it on staffing costs? Is it on 
inventory of cleaning supplies, for instance, or protective gear that you would yeah. uh, normally not have to purchase additional gowns and gloves, but you are now? Yes, we'll, we will have some of that, but our, our most significant number is, of course, the staffing cost. Elaine, we spoke a little bit about some of the uncertainty around access to skilled nursing labor, should it come to that. But more immediate is the access to protective gear. Uh, are you finding uh, the inventories that you need to find in order to operate in the kind of environment that this virus or the threat of the virus demands? There are already some problems, but we are at this point meeting the challenges. Elaine, several years ago, after the tragedy of Hurricane Irma and the Rehabilitation Center in Hollywood and the deaths there, the legislature put into place some regulations regarding emergency power backup. As the industry has wrestled with that, how does the threat, the uncertainty of the COVID-19 virus compare uh, from a business operation standpoint for the industry? Well, I'll give you a quick idea of the impact of the uh, generators. We, of course, had generators for all of our facilities, although not uh, sufficient to keep every person in every room comfortable. We were able to keep people comfortable to the greatest degree possible. A company like ours has had to find a way to pay for $1.8 million worth of new generators in order to provide extra power for the extra cool care. Um, it's, it's a very, very great burden, and a lot of uh, operators are feeling it. Has it affected at all your financial capacity to respond to the COVID-19 threat? We will not let it affect our ability to respond to this new threat of the virus. Speaking with Plaza Health Network CEO Elaine Bloom via FaceTime late last week. Still to come, a veteran elderly care expert on the threat posed to nursing home patients. They're pretty vulnerable because it's a congregate living situation. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening, and thanks for supporting public radio. You can find a podcast of all of our previous programs by searching Sunshine Economy on your podcast platform. Rona Bartlestone has made it her job working with patients, families, and health care providers. She has focused her work with elderly care since the beginning of her career. I've been in elder care since about 1973. You're your listeners can figure out how long that is. It's almost a half century of experience through lots and lots of changes and challenges, policy changes, business changes, certainly hurricanes and public health risks, and experience caring for her own family. And I've just been working with older adults and their families, including my own, because my mother had dementia. And so in addition to being a professional, I'm a family caregiver, and I really get what families go through. Today, she is the CEO of Our Aging, a company that works with health care service providers who work with senior citizens. I started our conversation late last week by asking Rona what she thought about part of the response to the COVID-19 virus from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid that narrows inspections of nursing homes exclusively 
on safety and infection control for now. I'm very concerned about it because unless it's backed up with additional funds, I don't know how states like Florida are going to be able to do that. Our state has fewer inspectors and supporters from the Agency for Healthcare Administration than really is needed in the nursing home or the home health industries. So unless they're backing that um, that statement up with additional resources for states, I don't know how that's going to be helpful. When the federal government talks about $8.3 billion in additional resources for the coronavirus, it sounds like you think some of that ought to go for inspectors to nursing homes if they're going to be inspecting homes more for uh, infection control. That's correct, because I really think that most states don't even have enough inspectors to be able to go in and see what's happening, provide education, provide um, equipment that might be appropriate, um, and to help families deal with their concerns. uh, Because we know that it's older adults with chronic illnesses who are the most vulnerable to this new virus. So how vulnerable are nursing homes and elderly care facilities? We've seen the outbreaks, obviously, in the Seattle area. Uh, at least one or two patients here in Florida had been residents. So how vulnerable are these facilities? They're pretty vulnerable because it's a congregate living situation. Unless you are self-quarantining to your own room, and many people share rooms, um, it's going to be very hard. And we don't have a lot of isolation um, capacity. I think it's a serious threat. There are also not even enough test kits. So I don't, I don't know how the states are going to have the personnel, the test kits, and the other protective equipment to be able to really um, secure the well-being of the vulner- most vulnerable population, and that's the older adults. We've heard earlier about how some homes are putting in visitor screening protocols Uh, Some asking the questions that the Centers for Disease Control have recommended, including have you traveled to any one of the uh, countries where there has been an outbreak within the 14-day period? Have you had any connection with people who have traveled to those? But others also doing even temperature scanning for visitors before allowing them in to visit patients. How effective could those kind of screening protocols be? Well, with a 14-day incubation period where you could be contagious and not have symptoms, I don't know that that is going to be terribly helpful. Uh, I would hope that it would be, but you can't screen out everybody. I do think that people who suspect that they could have the flu or even a bad cold should not go to visit a loved one in a nursing home. They should talk to them on the phone. What could be the effect on the well-being of patients um, with these kind of understandably tighter protocols for visitors and, you know, maybe a family member being refused admission to a facility because they have a high temperature or have traveled to one of these locations? Yeah, it could be very detrimental, particularly if the person has Uh, some cognitive changes or is so emotionally dependent on visits from 
a spouse or a child or another family member for their emotional and physical well-being. If the person is able to understand the rationale and can talk to or FaceTime or have some other way of visually seeing each other, that would be a good coping mechanism. But if they don't have that, um, there could be some, some real problems for people. What questions should family members be asking of homes where their loved ones are being cared for? They should be asking about the protective equipment that they have. They should be asking about the precautions that they're taking. On the with... equipment side, Rona, let me just stop yeah. you there, because what are the yeah. answers that you'd want to hear if you have a family member in a facility? You know, gloves are pretty standard protocol in, in nursing homes, but the mask, the, the N95 mask is not typical. Screening their own staff and making sure that their own staff is healthy. And if a resident is starting to look like they have a problem, I would hope that they would be able to put them in a, a quarantine situation, which I think is very difficult for most nursing homes to do. You're very familiar with the industry here in South Florida. You've worked with uh, operators and families throughout your career. How should this community think about the vulnerabilities uh, that this COVID-19 virus uh, may illuminate? Given the fact that we have the highest percentage of older adults of any other state in the country, uh, and in certain areas, even higher than other, you know, local communities like a, a Sun City kind of a place, um, that we need to be paying special close attention to the needs of not only the residents and the families, but the workers who are in these facilities and who might be themselves exposed, often unwittingly. These can be expensive uh, mm -hmm. uh, endeavors, certainly for patients. Um, uh, sometimes uh, Medicaid pays, sometimes Medicare pays, sometimes uh, Medicare Advantage pays. For families facing this uncertainty, uh, and for the industry facing this uncertainty, how could the additional cost of the protective protocols, uh, cost of staff overtime, how could those get figured in to this industry? Are those ultimately going to be passed on to uh, private payment patients? Well, I think that they'll be passed on across the payment spectrum. It won't just be passed on to private pay. It'll have to be passed on to uh, long-term care insurers, Medicare, Medicaid, um, and to the private pay consumer. I think it'll have to be across the board. Speaking with Rona Bartlestone via FaceTime, she runs Our Aging, a company based in Broward County. Now, still to come, getting the health care providers of last resort ready. Do I have 20 extra infectious disease physicians that I can call tomorrow? I don't. The same with intensivists. I only have a number of critical care physicians. It's not like, oh, yeah, I have a pool of extra physicians that I can call anytime and they will be happy to come and work for us. We're back on the Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. 
The coronavirus could put a strain on health care facilities in Florida, including the health care operators of last resort, the public safety net hospitals that receive hundreds of millions of dollars in taxpayer support. Dr. Lillian Abo is the chief for infection control at Jackson Health System in Miami-Dade County and professor of infectious diseases at the University of Miami. We spoke to her late last week before the first deaths in Florida from the virus were reported. Doctor, thanks for joining us here today. Uh, what is your sense of the state of the safety net hospital network in Miami-Dade County to prepare and be ready for what the COVID-19 virus uh, may mean in South Florida? We have been preparing a Jackson Health System, and we are experts in managing crisis and these situations. I would say that we have a robust institution that has the infrastructure to take care of our our healthcare providers and our patients. And we have been working diligently since early January and mid-January in having protocols in place and making sure, along with the University of Miami and Jackson, that we're both aligned in taking care of screening patients and providing the best care we can. What are the kind of resources necessary for that preparation? What I mean is literally kind of supplies and and financial wherewithal in order to get ready and to be ready pretty quickly. I imagine a ramp up could happen fast when those cases come in. We have a very complex health system and we have been diligently in working in implementing engineering controls, making sure that we have the airborne isolation rooms that we have the HEPA filters where we need them. We're working on equipment, making sure that we have the right equipment that we will need for different levels of care, from someone who can go home to someone who needs to go to an ICU. We're working with procurement, making sure that we have the protective equipment that we need, that we have not only that, but we have, we're working with pharmacy, that we have the right medications that we may need to take care of these patients. If we get to a crisis level, how do we will need uh, to deal with national shortages? All of that goes into the preparedness. The preparation is at multiple levels, and I would say I'm in the middle. So I'm, I have to work with the top leadership and our COOs and CMOs, making sure that we have the strategic plans in place. And we have to work with our frontline staff, making sure that they have actually not only read the protocols, because we can write all the protocols you want and have all the videos, but if people don't, don't pay close attention and, and really hands-on education. The CMOs in your world mean chief medical officer. One of the big significant differences between the planning for COVID-19 or any kind of virus and a hurricane is, of course, for a hurricane, you know when, you kind of know where, and you have at least three, four, five, six, seven, eight days of kind of preparation. Big difference in this case, right? We have been using this time all the month of half of January and entire month of February to prepare, and we have been ramping up and escalating as needed. Does that mean buying supplies, stockpiling supplies, for instance? Well, we have been ensuring that we have supplies using our supplies wisely. So you need to be a lean system. What do you do with the current supplies that you have? You don't stockpile, but be very mindful. Where do we have waste in the organization? How can we reduce the waste? How are we cleaning and disinfecting? Do we need to ramp up our cleaning and disinfection? Um, How are we doing hand hygiene? Are we screening people? So all of those processes and protocols are in place. When you are in that middle position, as you describe between the executives, the C-suite folks, and and the folks actually, uh, you know, carrying out those decisions, how or are uh, 
budget considerations talked about or thought about? So at this time, we have the chief financial officer in the room as well. So we have everyone who has to make a decision in the room. I contacted the information department and I said, I need to have education tools readily available in their electronic medical record. Let's say you're a patient, you come and you want to know, now I have COVID-19, what do I do? We have that education in English and Spanish uploaded in the medical record for anyone to access it immediately. Uh, Our marketing officers have been providing assistance with daily communications on uh, once or twice a day. How are you thinking about workforce considerations? We've heard from others about concerns about the supply of skilled nurses, for instance, in nursing homes. How do you think about that with this kind of planning? Again, everything is, you have to be flexible and fluid. You have to plan for the best possible scenario and the worst scenario. We have our nursing homes. We have our critical care nurses. We are trying to limit the number of people who will be in contact with patients. And there are some things that you can predict and plan, and there are some situations that will evolve as the situation changes. So in other words, uh, in terms of that supply of workforce, you kind of have to respond to it as it happens. Uh, yeah. are, are there a pool of medical professionals you can pull from? How, how do so you? So do I have 20 extra infectious disease physicians that I can call tomorrow? I don't. So again, you have to be very mindful. The same with intensivists. I only have a number of critical care physicians. It's not like, oh, yeah, I have a pool of extra physicians that I can call anytime and they will be happy to come and work for us. So the nurses, I think it's we have more nurses than we have doctors. And, and we really need to balance that out. You don't want people to burn out either. So like in any hurricane situation, we have two teams. You know, Alpha and Bravo, and whenever there is 12 a, hours on, 12 hours correct. off. Correct. So we have teams. We have not gotten there. But if we have to get to those levels, we will work like we work in a, in a hurricane shift to avoid um, burnout of the workforce. I think one important message that we have been constantly saying is Jackson cannot be the one and all handling all these patients. We really need each hospital in each county to work their own process. And do you feel you're getting that assistance? I think we're getting that assistance, I think, but it's extremely important that every hospital aligns and works with the health department, and that's what the governor has said, that each hospital will be able to handle it because you cannot just rely on the public safety net hospital to handle all the cases, that that it's not sustainable. So every hospital is working on their preparedness plan and working as teams. Speaking with Dr. Lillian Abo, the Chief for Infection Control at Jackson and Health System and Professor of Infectious Diseases at the University of Miami. Still to come in our program, financial statements, a story of money, and the price of life in South Florida. Even though I have a law degree, even though I practiced law, that is not who I am. It is merely something I did. That story is coming up next. 